Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Frog Snacks podcast. This is episode 113, and uh, we got some stuff cooking in the kitchen, and we're gonna uh, we're gonna deliver the goods this episode. So, uh, before we get started with a pretty good topic that I, I think is one of those uh, you know uh, evergreen constant debatables, which are some of our favorites, there was a little bit of banter that I wanted to bring up, and it's. Uh, a, a, a kind of like a weird cultural gaming phenomenon that that uh, I, I honestly don't know why we do this, but it's it's a fun thing and we definitely do it. And it just happened because a new console came out, and I'm talking about the durability test. And it's somewhat of a mini competition that like kind of doesn't matter. Uh, it's it's something that you know when a uh, when a, when a developer is like, um, we're going to come out with this hardware, they tell you all the specs, they tell you the games that are going to be on it, they might give some battery life information, they might tell you what peripherals are going to come with it, um, but nobody ever talks about how durable the thing is. But fans and publications in general have uh, really taken it upon themselves to make sure that everybody knows how durable the, co- the consoles are once they come out. And the f- earliest... Uh, instance of this that I can remember happening just off top without looking it up was they did this with um, the Xbox, the original Xbox, the PlayStation 2, and the GameCube on an episode of X-Play back in, like, I don't know, 2003 or something. Right. And I remember being legitimately surprised that the GameCube was the most durable of the three, Uh, being completely unsurprised that the PlayStation 2 uh, broke as soon as you looked at it the wrong way. (laughs) And, but, but the, the Xbox and the GameCube withstood a lot of punishment, but ultimately the, the, uh, the GameCube prevailed. I thought that was really funny because it was just this like stupid purple box that like didn't look like it could handle anything. And the most amazing part was that, you know, the disc flap cover broke off and like buttons were missing and the thing was still turning on and like running games. That was amazing to me. The Xbox was I thought the most obvious choice for durability it was it was a tank it was a big ugly tank I cannot believe that the that the diminutive GameCube outlasted it so which is interesting because I didn't realize when we were having this discussion that they were done in comparison oh they this has always been the case up until very recently where you know uh, Nintendo kind of broke away from the the like all at once kind of momentum yeah, but really schedule but this was this was always the case and um, this this kind of has continued with handhelds and whatever people will drop the consoles uh, people will put them in blenders whatever they can do to try and break it with you know w- with with some reasonable smidgen of hope that, that that is intact enough to turn on and run a game so the switch just came out um, uh, a, a brave soul uh, tied <laughs> tied their Nintendo switch to a drone and dropped it from a thousand feet it still turned on and still ran games even though one of the joy cons was was messed up uh, and was no longer connected to the system uh, this is incredible to me that the switch which is nothing but of of flimsier um, Kindle like <laughs> survived uh, a 1,000 foot drop and and not only the switch in you know in particular Nintendo consoles as a whole never seem to look like they 
are much. They their uh, their technics their their technical specs are usually a step or two behind the c- competitors. They are usually smaller physically. They usually don't look that strong. There uh, there's this whole um, you know there there's 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 this whole like I don't want to say I don't want to say. Uh, effeminate, but, but like this, this daintiness to them, they're, they're like, uh, rounded and, and happy and small. And they're kind of just like the, uh, like the meerkats of the, of the gaming world. And they, he they, said the meerkats. and they, they, uh, year in and year out survive these ridiculous amounts of, of punishment. And, uh, I mean, I'm, uh, there's, I was reading about this a little bit and there was a story about, uh, a man who left their we in their car for uh on the floorboard in the back seat of their car for years and after plugging it back in after uh after several years um through through uh freezing cold east coast winters and equally brutal life sapping humidity of the summers <laughs> uh for 2 years tested it and and it still worked um, this is incredible to me, especially considering the fact that one time my PlayStation two fell off of a, uh, uh, a night table stand. Oh, good night. And that was <laughs> it. And the shit and the shit, like the, the disc tray wouldn't open. And, and this was, we're talking about like a waist high drop, like waist high. And I'm not a tall human. We're, we're, we're looking at like under four feet drop and, and this and this weeping magnolia couldn't turn on after a four foot drop. And I was like, I was like, oh, oh heavens. Like this is, I'm like, what is, what, like, what is with this like antebellum debutante of a console that like can't, that like can't turn on after a four foot drop. Meanwhile, the switch is being dropped from fucking orbit and like, yeah. and, and it's right. And I, this is incredible to me. Right. So Sony in general has had such a horrific history with hardware. Like, the PlayStation 1 was mind-bogglingly fragile to the point where, I'm, I don't know if you personally had to do this, but uh, there's plenty of stories of people who had to literally turn the PlayStation upside down and sometimes, like, put a book on it to, keep, to avoid discrete errors. Like, what world is this? I, I do remember the actual latch that kept the um, the disc tray top open broke several times, and oh yeah, I heard about that too. Which was it was a tiny latch. It was yeah, a tiny latch, and obviously really fragile. Like if you closed it too too hard, it would go ah and just faint, yeah. and like it wouldn't ever close ever again. So right. so we definitely we definitely did some you know masking tape uh, you know fix jobs mm. on it and stuff like that. But it was like. Yeah, it was it was flimsy and for sure. And the PS2, forget it. I, as you said, I mean, I remember when I first got mine, and I, for, to your point, immediately felt like I was like, this thing is never coming off the ground mm-hmm. because, like, it's to the point where that was the first console you could have either vertically or horizontally, which was great. Mm-hmm. Except I was afraid that if it ever tipped over, good night, you know. Yeah, and then and then not to mention. Um, you know, like ma- manufacturing mishaps that led to the discrete errors, or and then, discrete errors, and then and them having to, uh, you know, basically re- remanufacture every game that came out after two thousand two to to be the different type of disc, so that it wouldn't like 
override the system and it would collect dust to the point where it would it would cover the lens on the inside of the system so so one of the one of the fixes for the for the original the fat was that you could unscrew it thereby voiding the warranty mind you you could unscrew it and open it up and uh, t- basically take a q-tip to the innards and it would clean it enough to uh, restore the ability to read the disc but that's not a thing that you you should have to do. See, these kids don't know. These kids don't know the perils <laughs> that we had to go through to get the consoles working back in the day. Yeah, I guess you're right. And, there was all and, there was all kinds of like whack homebrew uh, fix up yeah, jobs back in the there day. There was all right? sorts of shaman esque, <laughs> you know, backdoor. Yeah, hoodoo. Freak- yeah, boot like you had some, sometimes you had to take your console to your boy in the shop, you mm. know, on like <laughs> in Chinatown somewhere. Yeah. You oh. walked in through the, you once you parted the beads and went into the <laughs> dimly lit back room and it was he was like floating in the background, I see your PlayStation as a disc reader. Like how did you know that? He's <laughs> like I foresaw it. Uh, yeah, I foresaw this this t- this tale. He has like a controller in one hand. Yeah. Uh yeah, this is the kind of the kind of issue you had to do just to keep uh, keep yourself alive. It was terrible. Mm-hmm. And you know, Nintendo, for their part, has generally been very good because remember their whole mo for their entire lifespan in gaming has been like kids first up until really the Wii. Right. So they've always built all of their handheld and systems to be you know, essentially childproof. Uh, we didn't even talk about the handhelds. Don't forget, this is the company that turned out the Gulf War Game Boy. Yep, and that was, uh, that, that was I was thinking about this earlier, and I was like, I gotta bring this up, and then I totally forgot about it, I'm so glad you brought it up. For, for those of you who uh, don't know, there was uh, an original Game Boy that was brought to the first Gulf War in, in 91, and uh, it was brought by a U.S. soldier, and... It was hit with some type of ordinance, and the casing was was melted pretty badly. But it's on display at the Nintendo World Store in New York City because it still works. Still works to this day. Yep. Now I'm sure they've had to do some doctoring over the years, but uh, but the fact that they can even do such a thing is a pretty big testament to the hardware durability of Nintendo consoles, right? Yeah. And particularly back then when they didn't give a single shit about, uh, or nor did anybody else for that matter, give a single shit about exterior design. Like, the in today's standards, the original Game Boy is laughable. Like, the original Game Boy now is like what people would think is like some device to launch nukes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it looks, it, yeah, it, it looks like a, a controller for something, uh, Bigger something and not, sinister. Yeah, <laughs> something sinister. Not for your little game of monochrome Tetris. Okay, so all the handhelds, except for that, really the uh, the 3DS. The 3DS was pretty prone to from our good friend Uncle Paul's who works retail. The 3DS's uh, hinge was pretty prone to snapping by you know badass little kids. Which is part of the reason the 2DS became a thing, right? Well, yeah, but that being said, my uh, my 3DS hinge is beginning to crack, probably from opening and closing it 80,000 times. 
uh, over the course of, of its lifespan. But right. my original DS, the fat, the hinge was completely broken on one side. And that was because it was uh, it was actually a hand-me-up from my then-girlfriend's younger brother. And mm. it was – but it still worked. And I didn't know how because I didn't know what was fueling the top screen. Like it literally didn't make sense to me. But I didn't question it because it worked. <laughs> And then I, I think, and then I eventually got the light, and and all was all was uh, well and and rightfully and, restored. But and then you embrace tranquility. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm sure that with all these handhelds, the uh, the central cabling for, that connects the top to the bottom screen is directly in the middle. So you'd really have to completely sever its head like Wolverine to kill it. So, mm-hmm. which again, the testament to Nintendo's. Uh, Build quality. That said, though, I have to blow them up a little bit because going back to these kids don't know. Let's reminisce for a second about the NES. Sure. The NES and the days of cartridges and, you know, dudes furiously, like, uh, <clears throat> bringing in as much breath and tornado blowing the, the cartridge out to get dust out, which, by the way, for those who don't know, is actually counterproductive. Mm-hmm. Because when you do that, uh, any spit or any particles or whatever that, you know, come from your mouth uh, will actually degrade the contacts of the cartridge even worse. Mm -hmm. So from what I remember, actually what you're supposed to do is like take a cotton swab and I think a little bit of rubbing alcohol if you really think there's a problem. Yeah. Uh, But generally speaking, like in reality – if, the, if, if, if you were having a problem launching your cartridge, like, the cartridge is probably just borked. <laughs> and you're just going to have to play around with it until it works. Yeah, and we, mean, def- we definitely did that. The, probably the weirdest um, the weirdest homebrew fix for a game was, uh, was in, the, in the PlayStation 1 days. And I don't know who put this idea in my head. And I'm even more amazed, in hindsight, that it worked. Mm-hmm. But... For discs that were scratched, they used to have those things that where you could you could like you put it on the thing and it would basically like do like the LASIK eye surgery on it where you it would like it would remove like a very very fine layer of the bottom of the disc. But yeah. that was if you had forty bucks, which I didn't because I was a child. Of course. The other way was to take a toothbrush and literally put toothpaste on it and literally brush the bottom of the disc. And the idea was that it would work as, like, weird, like, garage door putty. And you would wipe it off so that there was, there was no, like, actual toothpaste on the screen or on the, uh, on the bottom of the disc. But the, uh, the, the, like, minute cracks would have been, would have been like, quote-unquote sealed. sealed. And that actually worked for me a few times. And then the, the, the cotton swab with the rubbing alcohol on the um, – on like the, uh, I, I don't know what part of the cartridge that's called, but the, what the, on the metal the, contacts. Yeah. The metal contacts. Yeah. Uh, that, that were underneath where the, uh, where the, where the cartridge was placed into the console. Those two were the ones that I remember, um, from, uh, my, my youth, that and blowing into it, which we all know now is not, is not, uh, good. Right. So your story with the disc is actually less crazy than it sounds because now you take me back to when I used to work at the library. And when I used to work at the library, 
we had a pretty massive DVD collection, right? Because this is, of course, 04, 05. Yeah. When libraries were really stepping up their multimedia game. So, of course, given that this is the library in my town is has been the spot for a long time. And people, we basically, it's funny because we always said, at least I did, that the blockbuster in our town before Netflix really took off, I was very sure that we killed Blockbuster. Because why go pay Blockbuster uh, for the movie when we, you can get the same movie from the library for free? Because we were pretty aggressive about putting out new releases and our collection was deep. So, but anyway, uh, because of that, obviously, there was a lot of scratched up DVDs and also we had a lot of music CDs too. Actually, we had even more music CDs than uh, DVDs. So we actually invested in one of those fancy machines that you described to actually remove a small layer of the disc and repair it to full glory. And I was one of the people who was charged with actually doing the repairs. So one of the things we actually had to do is that it came with this little bit of uh, like a little gel, but actually, as you said, it looked like toothpaste. And you actually put that a dab of it on the disc, and you picked one of the correct uh, sanding heads. This is how fit how deep it got because there were multiple heads depending on how badly the disc was scuffed. And then you ran it through, and if you did a good job, you could get a disc that looked pristine. Damn. It was amazing. That was one of my favorite parts of working the library. To be honest with you, <laughs> bringing this back from the from the brink. Uh, so yeah, that's a little tech wizardry slash inside baseball for you uh but before we move on from this i have to blow up one more company because we did not talk about arguably the worst offender in hardware of them all Mm. microsoft yeah so like the the 360 was legendarily fucked up uh in this regard that's the perfect way to put it and and the, the the most interesting part was that the original xbox had no problems that i that were like at, le- at the very least, endemic to the system. Like, no. some sometimes the system would break, sure, or whatever, like, you'd get some type of error, but, like, again, you know, you're and half not... half the time, that was probably from people trying to hack that shit, let's be honest. Yeah, you know, there were some overheating issues, but the 360 had uh, a, a, like, laundry list of malady that, <laughs> that you could, you know, that... A book. I remember towards the end of its lifespan, I was still like discovering more problems that people were having. Like I had like a, I had like the, uh, the error 63 or whatever. And it was like, I remember thinking like there are 63 of these motherfuckers. Like, I can't believe that. Like, like the red ring is the most famous. Right. Right. And I think, I think it was, I think it was an overheating issue that wouldn't allow the, the, um, the actual shit to like boot, but that was one of the things that could cause the red ring. Yeah. Yeah. But the, the, the red ring was just the, was just a death sentence back in the day. And I think, I think the PlayStation two and the Xbox 360, I went through the most systems of because of how many problems there were with those systems and with, uh, you know, how fragile they were. I'll never forget that the original 360 I had, I'll never forget because I came back from one of our events on campus and I was sitting there playing some Gears 2 and one of our other friends, shout out to Devon, came through 
and was watching me play it. Mid-match, the system locked up. And we both stared open-mouthed at the screen for a minute. <laughs> and then I was like, all right, the system locked up. That's not normal, but whatever. I turned it off, tried to restart, and I was greeted by our old friend, the Red Ring of Death. You know that the Red Ring of Death was a thing, a big problem, when it became, like, a cultural icon. From, like, 2006 to, like, 2009, like, it was a legit gaming icon, the Red Ring of Death. There were all these, like... Uh, these, these, uh, these like, uh, like pop up hustlers that would, that would be like, I'll fix your red ring. I know how to do it. And they would do like the weird towel trick and stuff like that. Try and fix it and take it apart and like void the warranty. And again, like this isn't, this isn't correct. And the, I think it's the only other system that I had that I dropped and did not work again. And from, we're talking about again, from like my hands, which you know, is not exactly a thousand feet off the ground. Right now, no, this is not a thousand foot drone drop. Not so at all. I believe that I had a red ring, uh, got the got the red ringed three sixty replaced. The replacement three sixty got stolen. I got a n- another one. That one, uh, I think, like, uh, I think I breathed on it too hard and it broke. Um, <laughs> And then the, the one that I have now was like the last edition arcade, which when I got it, I think it was like 150 because it didn't even come with the hard drive because I still had the hard drive from the, uh, from the, the one that broke of its own volition. So I was able to not have to spend that much to get the, the replacement. And it was, it was wild because we're looking at a, one of the longest lifespans of any console in recent memory also. This is like a full 10-year span of time and that wasn't even like a a technically 10 year like it was actually 10 years yeah yeah we're not rounding up like we're we're seriously looking at uh at at about 10 years and we're also looking at one of the most important uh times to be a console owner in general and there were so many great games coming out and you know pc gaming was still out of the reach of a lot of people especially us as like college students at the time and high school students and so, you know, I, I like, I, I needed a 360 and stuff was always happening to him. And, and this is pre indie revolution and all that stuff. Yeah. And, and I think, uh, as a matter of fact, no, I have, this is my fifth, this is my fifth 360 because the one that I got that replaced the one that like fell over and died, got the E63 error. <laughs> See, I'm laughing because... If I think about it, it would take me longer than we have to go fi- go through precisely and remember. But I actually think I also probably have owned three, five, three sixties. Like unacceptable. You should have one, w- one console, and then like Agreed. realistically one. Like there, there should not be a backup, and there should definitely not be five backups. The only reason you should need another one is if you're balling and decide you want to have one in multiple rooms of your house. And even then, like, with that, that still still shouldn't be a thing. I'm saying, um, one. Agreed. Yeah, one. You should only need. You should only require one over the life of the machine, over its its business and a cultural life. 
Yes. You should only require one. I agree. So the Switch, uh, very durable, can survive a 1,000-foot drop. Great. Um, Good to know for those people who are scared to death of dropping it already. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I already got a screen protector and a carrying case. But I think that that's just like general maintenance type stuff. Uh, I'm not sure. planning on dropping it, but it's good to know that if I if I do drop it, I can do it um, from the height of a thousand feet. Yes. I can do it from around a thousand feet, and, and uh, be fine. So that's good to know. Yeah. Um, and knowing that uh, my cat already knocked it off of the <laughs> off of my nightstand um, once. <laughs> Uh, it, 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 it makes me happy to know that, uh, he can do that a couple more times and there won't be an issue. <laughs> yeah. So, so now that we got that, uh, out of the way, felt like I really needed to relay this information and, and take a little stroll down memory lane. Um, that, that was a good stroll down memory lane. Agreed. Agreed. So one of the, uh, one of the things that's, uh, going on currently is, um, uh, Overwatch news, which is kind of weird to say because it's been out for a year, but there's always Overwatch news. One of the things that's happening right now is the one-year anniversary event. I think it came out exactly one year ago, uh, like five days ago. I think so, yeah. So it's, which is pretty insane to think about. It really is. And so they're doing the, the anniversary event, and they're uh, starting a new competitive season. And with that new competitive season came... Uh, a couple of uh, a little bit of a discussion that I think that we can kind of uh, build on a little bit and uh, relay here, and that is uh, not Overwatch specific, but using it as an example. What competitive games should be doing to incentivize um, competitive play over other game types, or should they at all? And the uh, the article in question that we are using as a basis for this discussion was uh, an opinion piece on Game Informer that said that, uh, yes, as a matter of fact, uh, Blizzard has put a competitive mode into Overwatch, and if they want to do uh, items that you can only get from playing that thing, then that's fine, because that's uh, a way to incentivize the, you know, the, the myriad ways of playing Overwatch, and and not only that, but one of the ways that they intend to see Overwatch uh, progress into the future is is from its competitive play and tournament play. So there's definitely some uh, some dissent to that. I think from from the both of us, uh, and and also notably from Jeff Kaplan. So I think that this is uh, this is something that we could we could use as a jumping off point for the rest of the episode. So so wait, uh, are you for or against incentivizing competitive play with items and such? I am for it, but not so much to the point where. See, it's tough. Like I, I think that it's fine. I think I think that you have to take into account. It, it's hard for me to look at it objectively because I'm I'm looking at it from the the point of. We need competitive play for mm-hmm. every game. Like, every game needs to... Not needs to... Okay. You know my stance on this, right? Which is that... <laughs> I do. Which is, Please elaborate. If you, if you, <laughs> for those of you listening who, who don't know, my stance on games that have a competitive scene is that if you are playing the game and you're not doing it competitively, meaning not like sponsored by an esports team, 
uh, or on an esports team. I mean, like playing competitively, as in playing a, a ranked mode or or a, or a mode that keeps track of your wins and losses to some degree. Then that you are merely practicing the game. Uh, in Overwatch, for example, if you are not playing competitive mode, you are merely practicing. If you are playing quick play, you are just practicing. It's it's not. Um, he means this in a slightly derogatory manner. I, this is not I, <laughs> I don't think that I mean it in a derogatory way because I, I play quick play all the time when I'm trying to practice. Like, I don't think that there is anything wrong with quick play. There obviously needs to be quick play. Quick play is important. Sometimes I'm rusty. Sometimes I'm playing with friends who don't want to play competitive. Sometimes I uh, am not feeling particularly... Uh, um, agile or feel like the, like I'm not doing, having a good night and I, I just want to play quick play and I just want to, or sometimes I'm, you know, there's a new uh, character or sometimes there's a character that I read about or saw a video about and I was like, this is a really good character. I want to learn how to play this character. I'm not going to jump into competitive mode, but I will at like a moment's notice. The thing is with, and uh, with Rocket League, I, I do not remember. I literally don't remember the last time I didn't play ranked in Rocket League. I'm always playing ranked. It doesn't. There doesn't seem to be a point for me to not play ranked because I don't see. I see that the that the, the game is like inherently competitive, right? Like you play the game, and whether you're playing quick play or not, you're still winning the game or losing the game. It doesn't make sense to me for you to not play the game and have it keep some type of track. And I don't mean like personal statistics. I mean like, like this is how well you have been doing as of late. This is, you know, this is your record of wins and losses. And this is what we're going to use as the basis of how to match you up in, in the future. I'm not trying to be a tryhard, and, and, and I'm not trying to like box out people who just want to play it for fun. I think all of these things are really, really important. But on a personal level, I think that playing the competitive mode for any of these games is ultimately the purpose and the and and ultimately the um, most important, perhaps the what? The most important. Perhaps. No, no, not even. I, the, I, I would say I would say the 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 most uh, the most like the most uh, the most genuine um, experience in the game is competitive. Because when you're playing the competitive mode, you are ostensibly playing with people who are trying to uh, better, who are trying to at the very least better understand the meta and at the very most trying to, um, you know, prove their worth. And if you are playing with those people, there's, there's this internal debate that I'm having with a lot of my friends as to whether or not playing with people who are better than you makes you better. And it, there are definitely some uh, arguments to the to the opposite that say, like, playing with people better than you doesn't make you better. And I think that... I, I don't think that's true. I think that playing with people who are better than you makes you better. And I, I don't think that you are necessarily being matched up with people who are better than you when you're playing competitive. But the whole point is to get to the point where to you are... You. You are, where you are pushing yourself in, in the metagame and if you it's it's tough to articulate but I, I think I think that you know quick quick play is obviously really important I play all I, I play quick play more than I play competitive 
but I'm ready for competitive at all times. I do not balk at the prospect of losing. I do not balk at the, at the prospect of playing with people who are ostensibly playing the game in its, in its most bleeding, understood purpose, which is to win. And I don't think that any of that becomes incentivized when you are playing quick play. And that's why I call it practice, and I don't mean to be derogatory when I do so. So, in shit, that was a very winding, <laughs> winding uh, road to uh, your answer, which I you say is ultimately you're okay with them incentivizing competitive play, essentially because it's if not the most important part of the game, uh, certainly an integral one. Right. It is the so, place. It, it is. It is the place to go, where the uh, the um, where the where the, boys are made into men. No, no. I'm try, <laughs> okay. I'm really trying not to like do do this like whole like uh, this like um, I, I'm truly trying to like break whatever like perceived uh, like kayfabe of one upsmanship that I that I might be you know projecting here. I, I'm really not trying to tear anybody down. What I'm trying to say is that I think that with competitive play, it's w- it's where you think of it as like Major League Baseball versus Minor League Baseball, right? Mm-hmm. Occasionally, there will be a, a subset of theories about how the game should be played, you know, minor tweaks to strategy. And those often find their way into the lower levels of the game, independent ball, uh, maybe even, you know, college ball, minor league, whatever. When somebody at the top decides that this thing is something that could be implemented at the highest level, it becomes a very major part of that sport at the highest level to the point where it's almost left behind in the lower levels because it's not experimental anymore. And what I'm saying is that the competitive modes for any game is the major leagues. It's where it's where the it's where the 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 believed uh, you know apex of the 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 meta understanding of the game is played out in the most um, in the clearest sense. And in, and, in the, and in the most agreed upon sense. So it's almost like, you know, it, it, it's, it's, it's almost like you, you are, by signing up to play competitive mode, you are agreeing to these, you know, these rules. You, you are, are, are agreeing to these, like, uh, the, these, like, natural law, um, you know, like, ev- evolutional uh, hallmarks of, of the game. And You're agreeing that we're going to be serious and we're going to play in a manner to further the game's collective uh, movement and evolution. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so I'm saying – so the argument though, this going back to the actual discussion, is <laughs> should, should it be incentivized? Incentivized really – depending on what the incentivization is. What we're talking about here in this in this particular example is the gold skin that you get for the for the weapons in Overwatch that you only mm-hmm. get from competitive points. 
right? And I'm saying that this is... This is fine. Ultimately, you can't you can't really make the argument against it because it is not it's 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 it is only a cosmetic item. Um, cosmetic items are really important, and people are obvi- like even even here at Frogsnacks, we're all in for the skins. We say it all the time, right? But mm-hmm. I'm saying I'm saying this. I I, I think that. The, the counter argument is, and this is why I'm not, this is why I'm kind of like, you know, undercooked on, on my position here. I think it's fine because you're not gating any real aspect of the game from anybody who refuses to play competitive or hasn't gotten around to it or, or whatever um, because it's cosmetic. But I'm saying the people who do play competitive for the same reasons I play competitive in any game are less interested in showing off the goods, so to speak, mm-hmm. than they are at simply winning, losing, or getting a better understanding of the game through winning or losing. And I think that everybody likes skins and everybody likes customization, and this should be a really huge part of every online game. But um, I think that I don't think I think that it, this is mostly people who play, who don't play competitive, who are saying, hey, we want this thing, and not people who play competitive saying, we should get this thing because we're real uh, gamers and real men, and, and you guys are, uh, you guys are uh, antebellum debutantes for, for playing, <laughs> for, for playing this, this, this inferior game type. I don't, th- I think that it's much more the former argument, and if that is the case, then I, then I then I will walk back on my on my stance and say fine, just give them to everybody because this isn't something that competitive players really care about. Um, but that's so, my that's my take. So in other words, you're for it, but not not so much so that it would be a conflict. Uh, yeah, I think that if if what what the argument in the opinion article states is that Blizzard has this game type and they should put something in all of the game types so that all the players play all the game types. And that sentiment I agree with because I do think that there's something to be said for playing all the game types. Blizzard worked really hard on all of them equally, I imagine. And, you know, they, uh, I, I guess they're not like losing any, any money or validity. If everybody just didn't play one game type, they would just remove it eventually, I guess, but you can't remove competitive it's it's here to stay ostensibly so i i think that um if if blizzard feels the need to make sure everybody plays all of the game types there could be like uh you know small non um non-exclusionary ways to get people to play all of the game types and i think that cosmetic items is a good way to do it but i'm not like you know, I still at the same time want everybody to have all the skins. So my take on it is a little different. Uh, I am in the Jeff Kaplan school of thought on this one. Uh, in that editorial, for those who didn't see it, uh, Jeff Kaplan said, quote, I wish we would have never added any cosmetic items to competitive. I think the people playing competitive should only be there because they really care about playing in competitive mode and they want to rise through the tiers. Aha. Uh-huh. So... That is a pretty good summation of where I stand on this one. Uh, and kind of what I just said, too. 
kind of what you just said, but I look at it from a little bit of a different angle, which is that competitive mode will always will end up in a game whether uh, the non-competitive people like it or not. Because in any game, uh, any online game where you can play against somebody and it's good, people are going to want to sort themselves. Like, period. It happens all the time. Very natural. It is, as you used the term earlier, natural law, right? Mm-hmm. As a matter of fact, it happened in Overwatch. Uh, because there was plans to have competitive mode from the beginning, but remember, the game did not launch with it. And even though it was already known that competitive mode was coming, there was still butter. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah. Because the the people who spend... I mean, you you gave a very carefully laid out defense of uh, being a, a very pro-competitive mode kind of guy. And <laughs> the reason that you are right to do so is because... Uh, most competitive mode players are not as nice about it as you are. Well, okay. uh, like I said, uh, like I've said before, I'm, I'm nothing if not diplomatic. Exactly. So most most competitive mode players are not nearly so diplomatic, which is why you have a large portion of the player base who would rather not deal with it at all. For the most part, I'm in that camp, uh, which is actually I'm in that camp so much that I usually do not play online games without friends being in my party. Mm-hmm. Uh, Overwatch, I mean, I'm fortunate that I can usually fill out a party for Overwatch, but I wouldn't require it necessarily. But in something like, let's say, Gears, where it's only four people needed, I probably would not even play if I did not have four people to play with. Uh, and that's because I don't like dealing with, you know, the try-hardy bullshit. So, I definitely... I'm, I'm not a person who is so crazed about skins that I'm going to be like, fuck, I have to go play competitive mode now. Shit, man, this is bullshit. Not, it's not like that. Mm-hmm. But uh, I can definitely see people that do think like that if they're basically playing Fashion Watch <laughs> and they're just in it for memes and good times and then, oh, great, now I got to go play with the Wolves? Yeah, nah, not not a good look, especially if you're a solo queue player, right? Yeah. Then it's going to be then it's going to be nothing but toxicity and butthurt. So, I totally agree with Jeff Kaplan that uh, competitive should strictly be for the people who want to play competitive. There is zero need, as far as I'm concerned, to incentivize competitive play. Because the incentive to play competitive mode is ego, which is in no short supply when it comes to the internet or human nature in general. Mm-hmm. The only thing that I would say would be okay is if they did something like Heroes of the Storm, right? Uh, actually, funny because this article, I think it was this article, uh, in a kind of a side swipe, also disagreed with the idea of having a uh, forcing players to play Heroes of the Storm to get stuff for Overwatch, um, which I suppose is an entirely different debate. But what I did like about the, that, the Heroes of the Storm cross-promotion is that it just was based on how many games you played, right? Because if I remember correctly, you only get the competitive skins if you get above a certain level, right, in competitive mode? Uh, in Overwatch? Yeah. No, it, it's it's just 
based on how much you play. Oh, really? Okay, well, then that's fine. Because I could have sworn it was based on... Uh, I thought it was... Because I thought there was something that only if you got to, like, platinum or whatever that you, only those players were able to get. There was... Okay, so there the, the weapon skins you just get from spending competitive points, which you get from every competitive game that you play, whether you win it or lose it. The... The thing that you're talking about is uh, every season. If if you if you do all ten placement matches for any given season, you will get the uh, the player emblem. Right. That's um, that's the icon for the season, and then there is another one that you get for each one of the seasons that like is the same one, but it like moves slightly, and right. that's the one that you get for being like one of the higher ranked players, but. It's honestly, like, not even that hot because it's the same shit except it moves and you can't even tell unless you're, like, your face is against the screen. Like, it's really <laughs> subtle. It's really, really subtle. So I, I, I honestly, like, f- forget about it sometimes. Right. So, well, yeah, if that is the case already, then, yeah, that is fine for just rewarding people for uh, playing. But in general, it's it's basically the flip side of your argument where you're like, it's fine but, you know, I'm not going to fight for it. Uh, I would say it's not fine, but I'm not going to, you know, raise my pitchforks against it. <laughs> right. You're not going to storm the castle. Yeah. This is not this is not the hill we need to die on. But right. in general, I if I was making coin shots there, I probably would not include that. Competitive mode by itself, bragging rights by themselves are more than enough for most people to want for, for a, a critical mass of people, I should say, to want to engage. Right, and that's and that's uh, that's kind of the the stance that you, me, and Kaplan all agree on, which is that you're playing competitive, but for for other reasons, not because you uh, want to get that thing and and show it off. Right. Um, exactly. So, so yeah. Also, there's something to be said for. Keeping people, keeping um, a certain amount of filtering, right? So uh, you could argue that one of the things like Heroes is that, of course, Blizzard wanted people to play Heroes. That's why they had that cross-promotion. But then you could make the point that a lot of those people, and I saw it when I was playing, uh, were literally like, well, all right, well, we got buy this match, but I don't care. I'm only here for the skins, right? Mm -hmm. So if that's happening in competitive mode of a game... That's a bad look. Yes. Right? The people who are only there as long as it's going to take to get a skin, that's not a good look for the people who are actually, like, trying to win. Right. Uh, and that's why they do That's why they do the, uh, the, the loot box giveaways for, like, the arcade mode games. Right. Right. So, yeah, and, that's, that's another point against doing these kind of, you know, cosmetic incentives in competitive mode. Like, I agree. I'll, I'll, I'll definitely agree with you on that, yeah. As far as I'm concerned, competitive mode, simply leave it to the people who wanted to be there for the, in the first place. Yeah. So you're not going to do the placement matches with me for Season 5 tonight? <laughs> no, I'll do the placement matches. <laughs> when you asked me, I was like, oh boy. But, <laughs> uh, I, but at the same time, I am not a uh, one to necessarily... Uh, well, I'm not going to say I'm not going to back down because I'll totally back down. But uh, <laughs> but knowing that you're not a tryhard, yeah, that I, I'll do it. So it's fine. Right. It depends on who you're – like 
like still, if I'm playing, uh, if I'm playing competitive, I, I, I still, um, I still expect the same like sensibility out of, out of somebody who's playing non-competitive. And I get the feeling that the type of person who plays competitive and just, and just yells, uh, or, or just gets mad and kind of makes the, the, the whole thing like not worthwhile it would act the same way if they were playing unranked also. Oh, yeah, totally. Because actually the last couple of times I played Overwatch over this past week, you know, we had a couple of matches, and of course that was all quick play. Mm-hmm. And you had a couple of people who were like, what are you guys doing? This is the worst team come. Oh, my God, we're going to lose. And then somebody from my part would literally be like, you do realize this is quick play, right? Yeah, yeah. So it's it's... It's the type of person. I don't think that the. I don't think that the game type makes the person. I think that the the person is just like that. So, um, agreed. So so yeah. Obviously, like no matter what you're playing, it's it's more fun with friends. You're gonna get a better experience with more friends. I think that I definitely uh, agree that um, the people who are playing competitive should be there just for. The, uh, the, the prospect of, of partaking upon like a generally uh, agreed upon set of, uh, of, of tactics and, and rules, kind of like a, uh, uh, kind of like a, uh, uh, like a, G- a Geneva convention, um, <laughs> you know, v- version of the game rather than, uh, a, a, like a, like a free for all, like, uh, like, um, uh, like Braveheart style version <laughs> of the game, so right. I appreciate I, I appreciate the structure and the and like the 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 most forwardly available set of meta rules that competitive mode provides. Um, I'm not afraid of having a shitty rank. I'm not afraid of losing. Um, from like a purely like political standpoint and like philosophical standpoint. I I stand by competitive mode. But again, uh I think that there should be a way to incentivize the type without um getting people involved for the wrong reasons. Agreed. Agreed. So anything else you wanted to add before we uh kicked off for the night? No no. I think uh I think we have uh Hit the nail on the head. Yeah, definitely. All right. So um, if you guys uh, if you guys want uh, want your input or if you want to do some placement wet matches with me because Frog won't, uh, reach out to us uh, on Twitter at Frog Snacks. Uh, check us out on Instagram at Frog Snacks Podcast. We got a website, frogsnacks.net. All of our written pieces are up there. I got one in the works finally for the first time in a long time. And uh, we're on iTunes. You can rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast there. And until next time. We'll see you guys later. Peace out.